0: So this morning we're going to be looking at Psalms 22, and uh, I want to let you know this, this uh, psalms, particularly this, this, this sermon, I, I think it's going to be difficult for me. I know it has been. Um, psalms have so much to do with our emotions, right? Um, and, I, and I know that I don't always think about my own or others' emotions correctly, um, because I'm a, I'm a pretty bottled up, reserved kind of guy. I tend to overly value keeping emotions under control. Uh, which is bad when we're called to be white hot with passion in the worship of our God. But my tendency to do well at controlling my emotions causes me to lose sight of the fact that, when I'm cold, that I am cold when I ought to be hot and I don't feel the joy that I ought to, when I ought to. I don't feel the sorrow that I ought to when I ought to. Maybe your experience, though, is the flip side of the coin. Um, maybe you're naturally inclined to feel things strongly. You don't have any trouble burning white hot. Uh, But instead of controlling yourself, maybe sometimes your emotions control you. Um, Which is also not good when we're called to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and peaceful. Your tendency to feel things so strongly may give your emotions more influence over your words and actions than you know they should. I don't know what your struggle is, and uh, sometimes I I don't even know what my struggle is. Uh, But I know what you and I need to live as whole humans rational and emotional, physical and spiritual humans on this journey towards heaven. We need God's word keeping our gaze fixed firmly on God's Savior for us, Jesus Christ, through his spirit creating in us new lives that seek to bring all of our being, emotions included, under the good and gracious lordship of our Lord, King Jesus. It's my prayer that this psalm will help us do that. Please pray with me. Lord, um, we feel the despair, uh, the agony in these words of David, Lord, and we know some of us today uh, come feeling that, having felt it recently, or going to be feeling it someday. So we know, Lord, this is very real for us. We pray that we would learn to take these things into our lives and process them through your word and bring them to you to set our hearts in front of you to call out to cry to you and to do so with confidence that you are a good and righteous and holy and loving God who cares for us your people and that you are faithful to carry through on your promises that all the promises that you have made for us are yes in Christ for those who trust in him. So be with us today. Help us see these things in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So my youngest son, Owen, he will sometimes wake up in his crib and start crying. Big surprise, I know, right? Uh, This is normal behavior for kids, I think. Uh, The crying is sometimes the angry, irritable crying of uh, a kid who's mad. No one's paying attention to him right now. But other times, in childishness, yes, but not less real because of it. His crying is the crying of a desolate child who feels the pain and hopelessness of abandonment. It's a scream, really. And when his mom or I comes in and rescues him and comforts him, the look of happiness, the smiles, the snuggles, uh, they're the joy of someone recognizes they've been rescued. Now, uh, Owen, he's about a year and a half old. He doesn't realize he's not in any real danger, that sleeping in a comfortable crib with clean clothes, usually a full tummy, parents five seconds away, uh, you know, he's not in any real danger, Um, and his situation is not that bad. But he thinks it is, and so his cry for help and his relief for his rescue, they're real. Uh, And I sometimes wonder if he's much better off in the simplicity of those feelings than we are. All of us, spiritually, are in much greater danger and distress than my son is in at any given moment. And we don't usually cry out like that. Uh, We need a rescue much greater than a parent coming and cuddling us and receiving. Any such rescue should give us such much more profound joy than Owen has. We don't, or at least I know I don't, feel the way I ought. But I think that's why God gives us the Psalms. See, written by the man after God's own heart, models of the prayers of the truer, true king that was coming, Jesus, the Psalms help us see how to pour out our hearts our emotions and feelings before God, to lay them at his feet in joy, godly anger, brokenness, sorrow, even death as in today's psalm. So we come to Psalm 22, and I encourage you to open that and have it open in front of you as we go through it today. We're gonna see as David looking at the deadliest and painful circumstances of his life, and instead of allowing them to determine how he responds in his heart, he looks to God, who has done a work in this manner after his own heart that causes him to realize that he is secure, safe in the hands of a sovereign God, so he can be full of hope and even joy in the face of anything that God brings to him. And, and, And more importantly, while David did this imperfectly, did this looking to God in his danger imperfectly, In this psalm, we also hear the voice of Jesus. And when he quotes this psalm on the cross, he's pointing to the hope and the joy that he knows is set before him because of his loving, sovereign Father. It's a hope that can't be shaken, even on the cross. Through through this psalm, he holds out that unshakable hope to all who place their lives in his care, a hope that is not tied to any changing circumstances but to an unchangeable God who loves us and sent us his son to bring us to him. So let's see what this psalm, Psalm 22, has to say to us. The first thing I want you to notice is the structure of the psalm. Well, because when we're we're reading poetry, and the psalms very much are poetry, you need to look for the structure of of the poem. It's very important in Hebrew poetry. Uh, very often it contains clues or ideas about how we are to understand the poem. And the first section I want you to look at is verses tw- 1 through 21. And if you, you, I want, you, let's see what's going on there. There's a back and a forth motion, a looking at and describing his troubles, and then a looking at and pleading with God. Um, in verses 1 through 2, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. David feels like God's forsaken him. He feels like God is far from him, that God doesn't hear him or answer him. He cries and he weeps in pain and sorrow, but there's no relief. Then in verses three through five, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. See, there's a change. David may have been addressing God in the first two verses, but his attention was on his troubles. But in verse 3, his attention is on God. He's looking at God. He sees God in his holiness on his throne. He sees God's faithfulness to his ancestors. He sees God has responded, cared for, rescued all those who put their trust in him. He remembers the crying out that his people have done over and over again throughout Israel's history. God's faithfulness to answer. Then in verse six through eight, not a, I am, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. See, he's looking back at his troubles. He feels the shame, feels the mockery and humility and lowness of his life. He's derided by those around him. His trust in God is scorned, It's made to appear ridiculous in the eyes of these mockers. But then, in verses 9 through 11, Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust me, you at my mother's breast, and on you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. See, he's looking back at God God has been caring for him, David, personally, since he was born, since before he was born. God is right there beside him before before David even had consciousness of God's presence. When he had no one else, God was all he had. He can call out to God personally because God is near, not far, and there's no one to help him besides God. And then one last time, he takes a long look at his troubles in verses 12 through 18. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Their dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. He's looking, and he's, he's surrounded by dangers, as perilous as vicious and violent wild beasts. He can feel their breath on his face as they're all around him, as they roar right in his face, His body has no strength in it. His heart is melting with fear. David, David, this mighty warrior who has fought lions, bears, and giants, he has no strength. His mouth has dried out from fear and he feels like he's as good as a corpse laid out in the dust of death. It feels like his hands are pierced so he can't fight. His feet are pierced so he cannot run. It's as if he can feel all the bones in his body pulled out of their joints, and he feels as if his victorious enemies stand over his defeated body, dividing his spoils among themselves. But then David wrenches his eyes away from these horrors and looks one last time at God in verses 19 through, 19 through 21 to plead with him, to pour out his heart that God would save him. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off, oh you my help, come quickly to my aid, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. The final plea for help. And what's the result? Well, the result is verses 22 through 31 an outpouring of praise and joy, an exhortation to the rest of God's people to trust him and rejoice in him, a resounding exclamation of confidence that God is everything that David needs and everything that he wants. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you, you who fear the Lord. Praise him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel." and on until the end of the psalm, just an outpouring. That's the structure of Psalm 22. David looking at his troubles, looking to God, looking at his troubles, looking to God, looking at his troubles, looking to God, and then bursting forth in joyous praise as he realizes salvation is what God has worked for him. It's that God is his glorious treasure that God is the good and glorious and ultimate king and that this is a wonderful thing for God's people among whom David counts himself so I hope that structure helps us think about this as we dig deeper into psalm we're going to construct a sentence that contains what I think is the main point of this psalm a psalm that can inform how we think about our lives and how our heart can feel about these realities the first part of the sentence is, in a world of death. See, the things David talks about in this psalm are realities from his own life. He, his life was in danger all the time. Uh, Saul chased him with an entire army for years, years. Uh, he suffered greatly living as a fugitive in the wilderness. See, when the Bible talks about him living in the wilderness, it, it's supposed to bring to mind images of deprivation, homelessness, poverty, discomfort, living rough. If you've been camping without the comforts of a roof over your head and sleeping on the ground, can you imagine doing that for years? Uh, When David lived among the Philistines, pretending to be a stench to the Israelites, do you think David could trust anyone among those wild bulls, those vicious dogs and enemies of God's people? Do you think he ever felt safe? No, these words, these dangers that David described reflect that he had real reasons to fear. He had real reasons to feel despair. He had real reasons to weep and cry out. See, in these sections of this psalm, the expressions of the sense of danger and suffering... They reach their fulfillment in Jesus when he, the possessor of perfect eternal life as the second person of the Trinity, became a human person, a man who partook of human mortality, living in a world of danger and grief and sorrow, a man of sorrow, acquainted with suffering, smitten, stricken, making himself subject to death, death on the cross, Uh, See, David's perfect promised son was surrounded by enemies his whole life. Uh, And then, at the end, the truer true king was forsaken by God in a way that he never deserved, never earned for himself through his own sin. His loving father, with whom he communed perfectly since before time began, being far from him. But not just far from him, pouring out the just wrath for sin he had never committed on his head, just as if he had. And then death. Death coming to the one in whom all of life has its being, the author of all life. See, these sections of the Psalms also reflect a reality in our own lives too. Death is there for all of us. Uh, it waits for us, looming behind every sickness, every accident, every loss. Uh, maybe not wild beasts and enemies who wish us physical harm, but cancer and car accidents and financial ruin and depression. And, and it's not just the capital D, death, the end of our lives. But There's death in every part of the world that has fallen because of Adam's sin and not functioning according to the good design God made it with. There's death in my work that feels fruitless. Uh, there's death in the breaking down of my possessions. There's death in our knee injuries and diabetes and fevers and colds. There's death in the moth and rust that destroys and the thief breaking in and stealing. And See, there's, there's, an, there's something else. There's a death that we seek as well every time we reject the good God of the universe, every time we rebel against his perfect will for our life, and every time we reject the life that came as the light of men and embrace the darkness because it hides our evil deeds. See, we're surrounded by death. It's no good acting like death, pain, and suffering don't exist. In our culture, we can put it out of sight, out of mind, in ways never before imagined throughout all human history. We die... These days, out of view, in sanitized hospitals, we anesthetize ourselves with drugs and food and sex and entertainment and busyness until we forget that pain and death exist. This is not good. and This is not a biblical response to the world of death we live in. We don't want to obsess about it, but death is not to be ignored or to be treated like it's somebody else's problem. And no one felt this more than Jesus. When he expressed the words of the psalm on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was expressing the ultimate pain at a world of death, of death brought into his very flesh. Not a death he earned through his relationship through to Adam, the first sinner. Not a death he earned through his own sin, but death nonetheless. And it was ugly, and it was wrong, and it was not the, God, the way God made the world to be. And so his heart cried out in horror and pain and anguish with the very words of this psalm. And we too, we need to recognize the wrongness of death. It isn't something to be treated lightly. Uh, to many of us, it has come to those we love. It will come for you, and it will come for me. It will come for each of us in little ways every day as our bodies break down and as we suffer losses. And someday, it will come for us in a big way as the end of our earthly existence. It's no good pretending it won't. And the strategies we use to help us pretend it won't are often sinful and unhelpful. And without the realization that we are as good as dead in a world of death, we will never realize our need for God to save us, to cry out to him. And that's where we're going. Because remember, the structure of the psalms shows David looking at death, yes, realizing his dire situation, yes, but then God looks at God, and that brings us to our second point. In a world of death, looking to and crying out to God. Second point, sorry. (laughs) Do you see how after every episode of staring death and pain and loss in the face, David turns his gaze to look at God, to implore God for help? He does it in verses 3 to 5 by reflecting on who this God is, that he is trusting a holy God, set apart, unique, different, far above. A God set apart in the praise of his people is completely unique. This is the God who has rescued his people. He makes promises to be good to them, to give them a home with himself, to rescue them from their enemies. And he has done these things. He is faithful and can be trusted. And David knows it and tells God he knows it and praises him for his faithfulness. And then in verses 9 through 11, David meditates on the care that David has seen from God in his very own life. How God is not just, not just set apart and holy, as in verse 3 to 5, but close and personal God brought David to himself at a young age. God has caused David to depend on him and realize God is his only hope since birth, since his mother's womb. He knows that even with trouble near, whatever that trouble is, whether that trouble is Saul and Israel's army, Nabal, the Philistines, whatever it is, God can be relied on to answer his prayer of be not far from me. How can a God who knows us and loves us from the moment we were conceived, before that moment, be too far away, too distant to hear our cries for help? Even when no one else is there to hear or to help, God is there. And then, in verse 19, after that prolonged look at the danger that surrounds him, the death that surrounds him, David says this. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. See, this is, this is a cry for help from a man who cares that he is suffering. He's feeling the full weight of pain and agony, of death closing in. See, this is a desperate plea, yes, the genuine plea of someone who realizes that their life is precious and it hangs by a thread, Uh, but it's also the confident plea of someone who knows that God will save him, who realizes this so fully that he can talk as if it's already happened. And sure enough, God answered this prayer all through David's life. He was faithful to rescue But there is another king who prayed these same words, made this same cry in the face of a death that did come to him, that he knew was coming to him. Knowing that he would die, knowing that his father was not going to rescue him then from the lion, from those fierce bills, those vicious dogs, Jesus still entrusted his life, his hope, his everything to God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, Jesus' perfect obedience in looking to his Father for his hope and his joy, even to the point of death, Jesus' cry of trust as he suffered the death you and I deserve is why you and I can do this. Can look to and cry out to God today. His obedience and his death earned for us God's favor and adoption as sons and his spirit, which he sends to us to change our hearts to be more like this perfect son. Now, you and I can do the same things Jesus did in the midst of his death. And we can't do it perfectly this side of heaven like, our, like Jesus could, but we can't, uh, we can't do it without the weakness and taintness, uh, the weakness of our flesh and the taint of sin, but we can do it. We can entrust ourselves to God and trust that knowing him, doing his will, and having him be our sure hope is something to be treasured, a sure and solid hope for the future. Uh, and not only can we entrust ourselves to, Jesus, uh, uh, to God like Jesus did, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, but we're able to do it in the midst of our deaths, just like he did. Oh, now, what do I mean by that? Well, some examples. What I mean is that in the midst of a marriage, there's a part of me that demands I get time for me, that I get treated in a way that's fair and considerating of my rights. But because I know that God listens to the cries of his people, that God loves me, has promised to rescue me from my own sin and my own need to get the things I want here and now to be happy, because of that, I can die that part of myself that demands my own way and love without thought of what I'm getting in return. In the midst of a job where my co-workers, they're just hard to get along with. I can believe the promise that God knows me, has known me from all eternity past, and he knows better than even I what is good for me. And so I can die to the part of me that needs to Comfortably maintain my own bubble. And I can reach out in love and friendship. In the midst of a life that's, maybe it's not painful, but it's just hard. Day in, day out, drudgery. Drudgery of childcare. Drudgery of housework. Drudgery of whatever. I can believe that to know God and to be loved by him and to joyfully follow after Jesus and to be with him in heaven someday We'll turn every drudgery I'm living through now, will turn it into a memory of God's faithfulness to me so I can die to the part of me that needs to complain and grumble and instead do the work that God has called me to joyfully and faithfully. In the midst of brothers and sisters who have hurt me, who have wronged me, I can remember that God is the one who rescues all the members of my church family and I can die to the part of me that needs justice Leave it in God's hands and I can love them unconditionally. See, Jesus, looking to God in his death has enabled you and me to look to God in our deaths. And for those of us here trusting and loving Jesus, we will someday look to God as our final earthly death approaches and by God's grace, we will do it full of hope and trust. So in a world of death, Looking to and crying out to God receives its reward. That's the final point. In a world of death, looking to and crying out to God receives its reward. See, verse 22 is the turning point of the psalm and verse 24 is the pinnacle. Do you see how the realization of his salvation sends David into this ecstasy of praise Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you, you who fear the Lord. Praise him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. And the reason comes next in verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. See, after looking back and forth between death and his God, David expresses the completeness of his salvation in God and the result in his life. Praise, joy, worship, evangelism. See, we know how this works. You can see it in the childish simplicity that I mentioned at the beginning with my son Owen when he's crying in his crib in hopeless distress, but then I draw near and he realizes salvation is near. His cries stop. And instead of turning, uh, but instead they turn to beaming smiles and giggles and snuggles. It's a wonderful thing when the one we cry out to for help draws near and saves us. Uh, Maybe you can think about examples from your own life. You know, uh, situations when God intervened to preserve you from sorrow, saved a family member you've prayed for for a long time, sent financial rescue, gave a doctor wisdom that led to helpful medical intervention. Do you recognize God as the author of your salvation in these? And yeah, I'm, in, I'm including this earthly life in a variety of ways through the changing of your external circumstances, getting the money you need, the help of friends or family, the provision of a job, through the skilled work of a clinician and the use of medication. All of these come from God and can be recognized as his good gifts, many salvations that demonstrate his kindness and his care for us In a world of death. God works to save us from the dogs of financial ruin and wild bulls of sickness and the lion of those who hate us. He does sometimes. And we can't neglect the way that God is demonstrating his mercy and kindness to us every day through his good creation and providence. These are real and they matter and we're called to participate in them, to do good and help those in need and reach out and save the suffering We mustn't forget that or act like it's unimportant. It's how we demonstrate that the life of God is in us, that we are filled with his spirit and that we are living like Jesus. But there is another richer, deeper, eternal way that God is the author of our salvation that this psalm is pointing us towards. Now now think about this with me. David, David probably wrote these words looking back on his life, all the pain, all the death that was his constant companion. And he wrote these words in the last half of the psalm to express the joy that was his at having been rescued that he expressed in the first part of the psalm. The relief and the happiness that was his at realizing that God had not forsaken him, that God had never been far from him, but had in fact been near to him working for his good. But these words were true and in the mind of a man was being hung up on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus was not remembering the words of this joyful second part of the psalm at a point in his life when he had every earthly thing, when he was free from pain, free from need. No, he uttered these words, the first part of this psalm, when he felt forsaken, when he felt alone, when he felt abandoned by everyone, including his father, and he didn't, he didn't feel less abandoned, less despair, uh, more loved by God and happy about his circumstances because the second part of the psalms is objectively true. But it was because the second part of the psalm is objectively true that he could and we can utter all the words of this psalm. See, the hopelessness, the despair, and the feeling of abandonment All the emotions of the first part of the psalm were for Jesus the temptation to step down from the cross, the temptation to call an army of angels, to rescue him from this undeserved agony. Something stronger than hopelessness and despair kept Jesus up on that cross and that something was love, love for his father and love for his people. And that's the reward, and that's why even in the midst of his suffering, Jesus had these words, this psalm in his mind. He loved and trusted his Father, and he knew that the second part of the psalm, verse 22 to 31, were true. And Look at how it's the joy, the hope that drives this psalm to the conclusion. And it was the same joy and the same hope that drove Jesus to the end that he met on that cross and beyond. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, David, foreshadowing the very work of Jesus, could not, he could not help but to tell all his fellow Israelites, his people and his family, that God was his salvation, that God had worked an eternal, unshakable Unfathomable hope for him. By the end of this psalm, in verse 31, he he sees the joy of God's people bubbling over and telling the unborn, the next generation, about the marvelous work God has done. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You see, and now because of the finished work that Jesus has done, Christ himself is not ashamed to call us his family, his brothers. In fact, He has made us his people fellow heirs and children of God and now we experience the joy of being part of that eternal heavenly family and the joy of belonging to a community of believers reflecting the heavenly family and we tell and we show others about our joy in him and someday someday we'll go to live with our father and our brother and all the rest of God's family in perfect happiness and joy Do you see the joyful anticipation of heaven in verse 26? The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May our hearts live forever. David knew that God had fed him, sustained him, given him what he needed in all his time in the wilderness and during his times of exile and suffering. But the only food, the thing that satisfied Jesus, David's greater son, and kept him going, was to do the will of him who sent him and to accomplish his work. And now, we too, because of the work of Jesus, we too have a taste for heaven, a participation in this glory and joy and love by eating the bread and the wine, by taking it into our lives, the satisfying, nourishing, and joy-producing work of, and life of our Lord Jesus. And someday, we will sit at that joyous feast of heaven and be eternally satisfied for all he is for us. And it's not just eternal joy that the psalmist is pointing at. There's also an immediate effect in David's life in verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. And then in verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. David's the king, right? David knows that he owes everything, his salvation from all the dangers, his kingship, his rule, all of it comes from God. And so he will live under God's kingship in glad obedience. Uh, Not as dull and dutiful obedience that comes from obligation, but a joyful submission to God's will as the king who rules only for our good because he loves us. Uh, see, in Jesus, the truer king, in David's line, he always lived this way. If we take the time to look at him, we'll see in his life the ways that a life should be lived for God's glory and our joy. He gives us the ability to live this life by opening our eyes causing us to see the joy that is to be found in living like he did in living in him. And someday our eyes will be fully opened and we will really see him. And our joy will be complete. You see, in a world of death, looking to God and crying out to God will receive its reward. I'd like to close with some um, some concrete application to take away. First, the way that David was able to say the words of this psalm, the way that Jesus was able to say the words of this psalm is that they were both saturated in God's word. So when the squeezing and the pressing and the pressure of pain bore down on them, what came out was God's word. Just think about this. As a human man born as a baby, Jesus had to learn to read. And and once he had learned to read, he read God's word. Uh, uh, We don't have any evidence that the words of this psalm supernaturally appeared in his head after never having seen them before, uh, seen them written down. He had to read them, learn them, meditate on them, take them into himself so that he was so in tune with God's word, so immersed in its truth, so familiar with what it said and what it said about himself that when every nerve of his body was screaming out in the agony of crucifixion, and when the blackness of death was creeping in at the edge of his vision, what came out of him was God's word, this psalm. See, I wanna be a man that loves God's word like this. I want us to be a people that loves God's word so much and spends that much time and energy devoted to taking it into ourselves. We need to read our Bibles daily. We need to meditate and study and learn the truths it tells us. We need to look at all the promises God has made to us, his people. Dwell on all the ways he's been faithful to those promises. And we need to lean on what it says so that when we suffer, it brings us the comfort and the hope it brought to David and Jesus. It's what comes out of us. And second, we need to pray. Um, See, our failure to pray is in direct proportion to thinking we have everything we need to be happy and we can save ourselves from our troubles. I'm gonna say that again. Our failure to pray is in direct proportion to our thinking we have everything we need to be happy and we can save ourselves from our troubles. See, we don't pray because we don't value drawing near to God and we don't think we need to in order to get the things we want to make us happy. That's not living in accord with reality. The reality is we need God and praying, praying to him with words like the ones in this psalm is, the, is one of the means he has given us to draw near to him, to cry out to him, to thank him, and to worship him. So pray regularly on your own, in your households, as a family, uh, with other Christians, in your growth group, or right here before corporate worship every Sunday. See, these are the tools that God has given us to look to and cry out to him in this world when we feel overcome by sorrow and death. Let us do so together now in anticipation of the joy that is before us. Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ. We know none of this is possible without him. Uh, so Lord, we give you thanks that you uh, under no obligation to us but purely um, for your glory and for love for your people, sent him to take the punishment for our sins and do a work in us. Lord, we pray that when we feel uh, the various ways that suffering and death close in around us, that we would look to Christ, that we would hope in him. Uh, Lord, we know this doesn't come naturally to us. We, we want to solve our own problems. We want to uh, fix them through our various ways. Uh, uh, Man-made means, and Lord, um, we pray that we would be wise and and do things, but Lord, that the first thing we would always do is trust and hope in You, and cry out to You, and put our dependent, our hope in You, depend on You. Uh, Lord, do this work in us through Christ, cause us to depend on Him more and more every day, uh, growing in us a deep need to see Jesus more and more fully, and to cry out for your salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.